Hey everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. Welcome to a special backlog bonus episode. As you may know, we host our conversations live on More Light Presbyterian's Facebook page on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. We started going live on Facebook just one week into our COVID-19 lockdown in March of 2020, but I never released those episodes on the podcast with everything else going on. However, I want to make sure those conversations are included in the podcast too. So I'll be releasing a bonus episode of content recorded the same week just one year ago. While some of the context may have shifted, the liberation possibilities from scripture remain the same. Please enjoy. I'm so excited to see everybody again this morning. Um, Welcome to Liberation Bible Study. This is the place where we reconnect to the deep roots of resistance and liberation that biblical texts offer. I'm your host, Alex Patchen McNeil, and in this Bible study, we feature conversation partners who bring an intersection of identities as LGBTQIA folks, people of color, activists, theologians, and pastors. And today we are continuing our interactive conversation on Facebook Live to include those of you who are tuning in. So hello. Um, But wherever you are and whenever you watch or listen to this conversation, I hope it can offer you a moment of respite and reconnection and a space of spiritual nourishment to fuel your well of resilience in these really trying times. Um, This week on Liberation Bible Study, we're also celebrating Transgender Day of Visibility, and we're going to go ahead and celebrate it all week long. So, you know, we'll extend one day into a couple. And for those of you who are less familiar, Trans Day of Visibility is a day of empowerment and recognition of the many things that trans people offer just by being who we are. And so I'm honored that this week I get to talk to at least two of my trans heroes who have paved the path and continue to make a world where all trans folks can thrive. And so for today's episode, I'm so delighted to have with me Miles Markham. Um, For those of you who are not yet familiar with Miles, he's been working for the last seven years in grassroots organizing to advance LGBTQ inclusion and racial justice in evangelical churches. Miles is pursuing a Master of Arts in Practical Theology at Columbia Theological Seminary with a concentration in religious education. And I'm really excited that your most recent work has been around films and documentaries, helping to create and coordinate impact strategies for justice-driven documentary features. Miles, welcome. I can't wait to get in this conversation with you. Um, This Sunday also launches us into Holy Week. And so today we're going to be reading a portion of the lectionary text for Passion Sunday. And we've shortened the full lectionary uh, sequence down to Matthew 26 verses 14 through 30. And we're gonna be reading it through the theme of betrayal and family. Um, So Miles, I'm so excited to have you. And we like to get started in this um, kind of episode by introducing ourselves our names, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, knowing that whenever we encounter biblical text, we bring our full selves to it. So can you share a little more about who you are? Sure. 
Thank you, Alex. Glad to be here. I uh, am Miles, like you said. I use the pronouns he, him, or they, them. I identify uh, as a trans masculine person. Uh, Non-binary, I think, is the closest uh, to how I would think about my gender identity. I am Japanese American, Native Hawaiian, uh, Swedish, Irish, German. Um, so the multi-racial, multi-ethnic, mixed race experience is something that uh, is very uh, near and dear and relevant to me as well. Um, but it, it was actually my ethnic identities that started to understand more about my gender. Uh, so in indigenous Hawaiian culture, the word that would describe kind of a, a middle gender person uh, would be mahu. Uh, and so that's actually more of how I think about myself. Um, but depending on the context, I'll launch more into that or not. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's um, words, you know, that make sense for me to think about myself. Uh, I identify as queer as well. And um, that's not just how I think about my orientation um, in terms of my sexuality, but also uh, politically. <laughs> and that is important to me as well. I am a seminary student. I grew up in uh, evangelical expressions of Christianity. I still find myself uh, in a Baptist church, uh, but it's much different uh, than the one from whence I came. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I also identify as a nerd. So that also feels important to share. Uh, me, um, like you said, I'm, I've been working in documentary film this last year. Um, one project uh, was centered around uh, the water poisoning that happened in Flint, Michigan, and how that crisis, you know, five and a half, almost six years later, is still ongoing. Uh, and the other project um, is premiering actually here, uh, and it is about the history and the continuation of conversion therapy and the ex-gay movement. So those are uh, both what kind of take up most of my time and energy, but uh, have been a great way for me to leverage some of my experiences, the world I come from, and the world I would like to be a part of building in the future. So yeah, uh, that's that's me. Thank you, Miles. I really appreciate the ways in which your lived experience translates into the kind of educational and resourcing that you want to offer others as they navigate their own journeys. Um, so I'm Alex McNeil and my pronouns are he and him and I serve as executive director at More Light Presbyterians and I am a white uh, southern transgender man who was born and raised in North Carolina and now living back in North Carolina as of the past four years um, and really bring that experience of kind of some a bit of a nomad um, in different uh, context, rural and urban, and noticing some of the ways that life is both similar and different in those kinds of environments and have, I think, a sensitivity to um, access and accountability and what that means in different contexts. 
And I think in particular in this moment in the COVID-19 kind of seeing that play out in a lot of different ways. So that's one of the things that I'm holding for myself today um, in terms of how I show up in the world. Um, and I also identify as queer, um, although I was filling out the census yesterday and um, wishing I could queer the census <laughs> because <laughs> I changed my um, marker on my gender identity um, like birth certificate and just noticing like I was in the place of having to kind of I don't know like tell a half truth about myself and my family mm -hmm. and um, just thinking about all the ways that forms and bureaucracy um, impact our lived experiences and so I think those are the questions that I'm holding for myself and and for my community um, part of where I come from so I'm really excited to kind of dig into this text today. It's a doozy, um, yeah. but it's going to be, I think, an interesting conversation just given everything that's going on right now. Um, so I'd love to dig into the first reading. And when we hear the reading for the first time, we're really looking at and noticing what jumps out to us. What do we notice that maybe we hadn't before um, or something familiar that's turned a new way in our ear? And so, Miles, I, inv I invite you to read the text for the time, Matthew 26, 14 through 30. I'm reading from the NRSV for context, if folks are following on. Starting in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, Time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples as Jesus had directed, prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him and one another, Not I. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as is written of him, Woe to that one whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you. I'm... Curious as you read it through, Miles, what stuck out to you in this reading this time? 
Yeah, um, a few things. <laughs> um, I think anytime I read this particular text, I'm always kind of looking at um, the contrast of, of the table, right? So you have this symbol of belonging and wholeness, you know, people coming together. And at the very same time, a lot of the action seems to be pointed to betrayal and death. Mm. So I'm kind of looking at that, like, wow, belonging, wholeness, and betrayal and death, um, not as um, separate from each other, but happening simultaneously. Um, that That's a big thing I think that I, I find quite striking. Um, and then along those same lines, um, that even as Judas is named you know, as the betrayer, he doesn't leave. You know, he's, he's not excused from the table once it's like uncovered that he's the one. Um, he, he continues to partake in the meal. I, I think those are the two things that are all kind of jumping out to me um, and <laughs> disruptive, you know, to me <laughs> at the same time. What, yeah. what about you? Similarly, I was noticing that um, they did as he commanded them. And yesterday I was speaking to Justin Tanis about Palm Sunday and in Matthew's text, um, Jesus says, there's going to be a cult and a donkey tied up, like go and do this thing. And they go and do it without too much question, without too much hubbub. Um, and then he says, and then Jesus says later in, in the text we just read, one of you is going to betray me. And then there's a hubbub. It's interesting. Like <laughs> yeah. the idea of betrayal, was it foretold? Was it foreshadowed? What does it have to happen? I think it's something we all wrestle with, less wrestle with around um, kind of this Holy Week text. Like what is the, what is the role of betrayal in causing the event, the cascading events mm. that happen? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just think it's an interesting kind of, again, contrast. Like we have this, this holding of two actions, betrayal and doing as, as Jesus commanded, um, which I think is bound up in some way that is, I think, a mystery for me to untangle but it's an interesting contrastness. And I think to your point, you know, Judas not leaving the table, like I know if someone called me out that hard, I would not <laughs> stick around. <laughs> yeah. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I've been, I've been thinking about, like within Matthew's texts, um, he's really adamant that this is all part of God's plan like mm -hmm. Jesus had to be, be betrayed, this had to be fulfilled, this is fulfilling prior scripture. And it really struck me kind of reading it yesterday and today around how often in a place of fear, we try and look for clues that like this was all meant to be. Right. Um, and what do we miss when we're stuck in when we were like really kind of forcing or like looking for that piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think especially in the world from 
which I've come, um, there is a tendency to push, you know, for that, uh, you know, providence, you know, for fate, you know, for the inevitable, all these things had to happen exactly the way, um, you know, that they are described here in order to lead to this particular end. But I, I think for me personally, when I'm reading a text like this, I, I try to move out of that place, you know, and, and kind of move away from needing to answer, you know, some of those questions um, and into um, looking, you know, more at, well, regardless if they needed to happen this way, um, what happened like as a result, you know, of it unfolding in this way? And what does that mean? What did that mean for, you know, the disciples like in this particular context then and how the Christian, you know, story continued to unfold from that point, you know, leading up to the moment we find ourselves in. Um, and so that that's to me, one of the most intriguing parts of this passage is looking more thematically, you know, at what is going on uh, and, and less at like the orchestration of it, you know, and how it happened. Was it chronological? And, you know, would this thing happened if this other thing didn't happen? I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's, I, I, I think less of my approach to this text, you know, and, and more think, zoomed out from that. Right. What, what's happening? Perhaps in that line, like betrayal is less foreshadowed, but more inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bet yeah. Betrayal happens all the time for lots of different reasons and can, you know, I was really thinking when I was reading this a little earlier around, did Judas know what was going to happen when he betrayed Jesus? Right. Did, did he think it was going to be minor? Like, I get these 30 pieces of silver, I kind of give them up, and he's going to get a slap on the wrist by the religious authorities. Um, is that the level of betrayal he thought he was getting himself into? And then it kind of escalated and spiraled and then he seriously regrets the kind of betrayal that he was involved in right um yeah i mean that's such a good point because you know one of the questions here is around the culpability so one of the other things i noticed when reading this text is that you know when jesus you know breaks the bread and like raises the cup he says it's for all of you Right. And the part of, you know, this text that we didn't read is the part where Jesus says, by the way, all of you are going to desert me, you know, that that's going to happen too. And that's significant to me because it's, it's so easy, I think, to blame other people, you know, for the way that the world is happening right now. Uh, and it's so easy to um, speculate, you know, around like whose fault anything is. And the way that Jesus indicts everybody present here um, is intriguing to me. Uh, and, and so the point you make, you know, about the inevitability of betrayal, I think, points to something larger, you know, and, and that's that 
nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves like, hmm, I'm gonna do some betraying today. You know, it, it's hard for me to believe that that was what went into the decision, you know, Judas made was like, oh, like, I'm going to get these 30 pieces over and, you know, this mock trial and crucifixion, all these different things are going to happen because of, no, like, I, I it, it's just, it's hard for me, I guess that could have happened, but it's hard for me to believe, you know, that was what was in his heart, you know, that that was a part of his intentions and his motivations. It's much easier for me to believe. Yeah, he didn't know, yeah. you know, that there was nothing in his, like, imagine at the time that, well, ended up happening to Jesus was what was going to happen to Jesus. And so that is something that I feel invited into interrogating as well, that just because we judge ourselves by our intentions um, doesn't mean that that uh, is, is what comes from our actions, mm-hmm. right? You know, like the intention versus impact conversation is something I feel like is worth exploring from this text. Yeah. And I think relatedly how, how easy it is to be led into betrayal. Mm -hmm. Like you just wanted some silver. You just wanted to take a nap. You just wanted to like distance yourself from the scary thing. And I think the invitation to myself is, um, yeah, a noticing of, like, can I, can I notice when I'm being invited into betrayal of myself or others mm. earlier? Right. Um, and particularly thinking about it as people who identify, who identify as trans and non-binary, um, I was thinking about, like, what does betrayal mean to folks like us? Mm. Um, and that led me to, like, when are we asked to betray ourselves? And how often, um, and I, you know, I was just talking about the census data and it's like, how do I answer this question? Um, what's on my certificate now? What was before, like the kind of family I feel like I have versus the one you think you're gonna read me as. Um, and you know, that's a small betrayal, but there could be some big impacts of that. Like there's one less queer family counted in the census in Western North Carolina. Um, if, if I'm, you know, kind of marking my sex as male. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think these little betrayals kind of crop up all the time, not just for others, but for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what I've been reflecting on this last week with trans visibility. And I've, I've shared with a couple friends about this because I do think that there is a kind of pressure or expectation or responsibility that trans people can feel to disclose. Um, And sometimes that then is then interpreted as like a, um, a movement, you know, of like bravery and honesty and courage. And while that is true, sometimes I wonder if, if it's not a betrayal, you know, of yourself to, do what you need to do to like protect, you know, your personhood, you know, and protect your family. And so um, 
it, it really raises a question for me, then what is the of self, you know, and, and, and that is a theme that is worth kind of, or that's a question worth reckoning with perhaps maybe for <laughs> one's whole life. Um, yeah. and, and I think for me, um, it's, it's what I've thought a lot about as I've been doing this work with, uh, the film about conversion therapy and about ex-gay ministry because um, it's hard for me to not, you know, look at those experiences as a, as a complete betrayal of self. And at the same time, um, oh, that so much of my motivation was rooted, you know, in maintaining community and, and um, my sense of closeness with God, you know, all of, all of these kinds of things were a, a part of that betrayal. And so a lot of the work I, I feel like I've been doing to heal from that is to recognize um, that this is not a uh, black and white kind of issue, that this sort of like dualistic or binary thinking that I want to apply, you know, to myself and to my past and, you know, to Judas um, is just not an effective framework because um, the lines just aren't that clear, yeah. you know, around, around betrayal. And I think there, there's a kind of trap, you know, in looking back on one's experiences of, uh, you know, survival, <laughs> you know, as, as self-betrayal. You know, and, and so I don't know, that's just like a cautionary sort of lens I, I apply to this, you know, question because it, it's, especially when you come from a kind of, you know, religion or, you know, spiritual expression that is perpetually asking you to like self-flagellate, you know, and um, to negate your experiences and um, to, you know, shut down and like repress um, different dimensions of, of who you are and not just your behavior, your identities. I think it's, it can be dangerous, you know, to, mm -hmm. uh, spend too much time, you know, I, identifying, trying to identify like what was a clear cut, you know, expression of betrayal. What was it? Um, yeah. Mm. What I'm really struck by, and I really appreciate your nuancing of that, because I think in in this narrative, this part of the text, we're really zoomed in to Jesus and his disciples on an individual level. Mm -hmm. We're at an individual table for an individual meal. And thinking of betrayal as interpersonal is one dimension. Right. But I think zooming out to Jesus was bound up in a religious system mm -hmm. that invited him to betray Jesus's radical message. And in this Matthew text, he calls Jesus rabbi, which according to scholars is like a term that didn't really exist in the way it did until much later, but is identifying Jesus with a, within a particular religious dimension. And I, I think 
when we're investigating or interrogating betrayals on the individual level, there's always a system at play. Like I was filling out the census. Right. They, you know, that had a certain number of bubbles that has betrayed a lot of people over the years um, for their fullness of self around um, kind of ethnic identification and family um, composition, just to name a few. So in what way do we look at betrayal as bound up beyond just self? Right. And maybe that's where, if we move into the, the next reading, we can think about acts of resistance um, kind of operating within individual and systemic. Yeah. Um, so I would be happy to read the text um, the second time as we explore um, how the text calls us to resistance. Are you ready to move into the second reading? Let's do it. Sweet. Um, let me make sure I'm on the right page. Okay, so I'm also going to read from the NRSV. I had the common English up, but it went away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading from the good old New Oxford annotated. Um, okay. Then one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, God. He answered, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the son of man is betrayed. I would have been better, it would have been better for that one to not have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As we listen for this through this text for the second time, I'm curious um, how how did this text call you to resistance, Miles? Hmm. The first thing that is coming to mind for me is something that. Um, 
I feel like I've been taught, you know, in applying the, what is it, hermeneutics of suspicion. <laughs> and it's to ask, you know, this question, which I did not do in our first reading of the text, but who, who's missing, right? Who isn't here in this particular, you know, excerpt. And um, it's the women. <laughs> and I think that's a part of applying like a, a lens kind of of resistance to any of these biblical texts is explore, you know, who, yeah, like who isn't there? You know, who are we not hearing from? And again, kind of looking at the, the way the narrative unfolds right before, you know, this piece and right after it, you almost see um, the, the female kind of characters as serving as like a foil to the disciples, mm -hmm. right? So you previously, you know, have a woman anointing Jesus's feet, right? Breaking the alabaster jar, um, honoring him, demonstrating loyalty uh, and, you know, servant to just kind of to the end there. And then, you know, after this, you know, you have women again, playing a role of, you know, steadfastness um, as that contrast. And so um, to me, resistance kind of starts like in the text itself, you mm -hmm. know, and, and asking a question like, who is it here? Why are they not here? You know, um, it is, it's interesting. It's a, a worthwhile, I think, experiment to do in any type of Bible reading. Um, so that, that for me is the first thing I'm thinking about is like, oh, like, where are the ladies? <laughs> yeah, they were around yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. What was interesting, just on that note, and I hadn't noticed this before, when I was kind of doing my prep for this earlier this morning, I realized that the 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 verse right before 14 starts, um, Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Which is so interesting because then, you know, there's a kind of in the traditional communion liturgy, a remember do this in remembrance of me. Um, that just to kind of underscore that that contrast, like remembrance of her and back to kind of smashing binaries. I think we can get really locked in Jesus's maleness. Mm -hmm. um, and many traditions have done that. But the ways in which I think there is some interesting plays with gender and people of different genders and gender expressions um, within the text who who show a way that one is one that Jesus wants to follow himself in remembrance of her, which is really um, amazing. And I think a, a real note of resistance around how many stories are left out when we aren't paying attention who, to who's not there, who's not at the table. That's been a, a rallying cry for LGBT faith movement for so many decades of like a place at the table. Um, and one of the things I've been really conscious of in, in that is okay, so once you get access to institutionalized tables, are you turning to your left and right and noticing who still isn't there? And is that the place we actually wanna be at that institutionalized table? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think 
that to me is like the real thread of resistance here is a willingness to really look at what systems were at play um, at this time. And you kind of back to that idea of intentions and motivations and how kind of mixed and messy they can be. All of that I think is exacerbated by the fact of the Roman Empire, right, at, at this time. And I, I think it's, it's interesting um, that, you know, Judas kind of sells Jesus out for, for money, right? And, and I think it's so easy to, like, look at, like, just, just, like, reduce that to greed, right? But it, it's always more than that. Right, like greed comes from this larger structure and system that I, I think promotes scarcity and like the need to have and to possess. And um, I, I also think that there is a a way in which you know status and position you know is linked to any decision a person makes um, to do what they need to do. Uh, I, I, I think then look at what's in this passage, you know, means to examine, you know, in what ways, you know, we are upholding, you know, those, those traditions, even if they are hurting people, um, and in which ways we are, um, being silent. I, I think that's the other thing I'm thinking about right now is, some of the primary forms of betrayal I have experienced, you know, in my own journey um, from people who love me and care about me have been from acts of silence, mm. you know, not speaking out or up um, or asking questions when they clearly saw, you know, that something wrong was happening. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't, that just feels important to name, um, is that yeah. that's, that's one way it, betrayal as a theme kind of plays itself out in our lives, especially as it pertains to uh, structural violence um, and erasure and, and things like that. Yeah. Mm. I, one thing I was noticing in this reading that stuck out to me more than it has before is lifting the kind of words that have that we have made sacred around Jesus's words at the table, um, you know, the communion liturgy as it has existed, and how freaking messy it is in this text. You know, they're they're having this like intense conversation about you're gonna betray me and you're gonna betray me, and you know, like you know, people kind of uh, really rejecting that idea. And then, and then there's this moment of like, okay, and now I'm going to break this bread and, and, and offer it as my body and my blood to you. And I, I think kind of in this idea of personal and then systemic, just thinking about the number of us who have struggled for recognition within institutionalized religion around being ordained and, and called to service within the church and how forbidden these words were to us. Um, you cannot lead communion until you're an ordained person. That might be 
kind of committing a little heresy right now, but okay with it. Um, and just lifting it in this moment of like, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in recent days about can you do communion online? Can we celebrate this sacrament? Can we even celebrate Easter when we're not physically together? And this to me, like holding, holding the nuance, holding the interruption of Jesus's words and this kind of alternate vision of God's kingdom and God's economy. It's not about, you know, hoarding silver. It's about sharing bread. Um, I think is a real instruction to us around a site of resistance, resisting that like pull to the institutional way of doing things that excludes and segments and separates who is and who isn't. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that, you know, I really noticed this time, especially as someone who was just ordained in October after 14 years of <laughs> working yeah. for that. Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, how that has impacted my understanding of communion mm -hmm. and what that means. Um, I feel like I don't want us to hoard communion and that sharing of of self with one another and God's self with each other because it's such a important reminder of what's really at stake, who's really in charge. Um, it's not the Sadducees, the Pharisees, or the religious institutions. This is God's kingdom. And so a site of resistance for me is kind of a holding of that of that reminder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um to me, one of like the great, you know, liberation movement mantras that uh, really I, I think has impacted me greatly is, you know, the idea of like existence as resistance, you know, and, and I, I see that, you know, in your journey, I see that in the journeys of so many queer and trans people uh, who are called to ministry uh, and persist in that call despite uh, whatever institutional uh, hurdles, barriers, uh, or slam doors <laughs> that um, one is faced with. And I think, um, you know, that is something that I hold very close to me, especially, I think, studying, uh, you know, theology from like a post-colonial lens, you know, is what exactly does it mean for me to continue to call myself a Christian person? You know, because it, it isn't just uh, a, a history of violence toward me at the intersection of my gender or my sexual orientation. It's also true for me, you know, at the intersection of like race and ethnicity and culture and um, a lot of how I, wound up, you know, being a person compelled by the story of Jesus was the result uh, of my lineages being decimated. <laughs> and, and so I think uh, to call myself a Christian person, to exist as a Christian person, and to be exploring, you know, the, the places where I come from and the honesty, you know, of, of that story is also an act of resistance. And so I think um, this, I, I feel just continuously 
you know, affirmed in pursuing that work in, in reading texts like these. Um, there's something about being able, like there not being a glossy story here that reminds me like, oh, the Bible like uh, gives us permission uh, to be truthful, mm-hmm. you know, about humanity. Um, and you know, about our communities and about ourselves. And that to me, like, is a, is active resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Absolutely. I was noticing that when Jesus speaks before, before he offers the elements, he's telling the truth. Just simply naming, you're going to betray me. And, and I'm going to share this meal with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a deep act of resistance in that kind of truth telling that's not about shaming or judging. It's noticing and naming like Christian Christianity has colonized many people. Mm-hmm. And yet the texts we encounter are wild. There's a wildness in God and that calls us to break forth from a molded, clean, neat self that's, um, segmented and partitioned um and noticing those moments in the text over and over again i think um there's a hymn that came to mind that it's called there's this line that says there's a wideness in god's mercy and i was paraphrasing it in my head just now like there's a wildness in god's mercy around like it's unpredictable and strange and mysterious but i think that that's something we're so called to sit in is like what is the truth of right now and the mystery that is continuing to unfold um and i think holding those those two intention in this holy week journey in particular is is where i think we can be led to greater resistance of empire and and things that try and tell us lies about ourselves um confronting those with the truth is like such an act of of resistance. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's time to move into our third reading around liberation Let's and listening for what vision for the work of liberation this text offers. Miles, would you be willing to read it for the third time? Sure. Then one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him and to one another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. 
the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. <sighs> what came up for you? I think, again, kind of going back to the, the contrast, you know, of the table, right? Like wholeness and belonging, death and betrayal. I'm also thinking how this is called the Last Supper, but, you know, per, per tradition, it's actually the first supper of many suppers, right? It's like this inaugurating event of mm. people continuing from their forth to get to enter into table fellowship with each other, you know? So it, I, I, that's intriguing to me is, uh, the kind of last, but also first. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, how many times do we do something thinking it's the last time, but it actually is, is a shift into something new mm-hmm. and, and confronting that, that death of something mm-hmm. and leave room to like, actually, we want to we wanna remember this. We want to keep doing this. Um, that's really powerful. Yeah. What, what about you? Um, I was really struck by when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. What would it have been like? So I, I, you know, I said earlier that Jesus tells the truth. What would it have been like for Judas to say, yes, it was me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. um, because even as Jesus is offering that kind of, he, he gets judgy about you shouldn't have been born, which I really don't love. But, um, but I think he's kind of saying it in a, in, in a neutral way at first. And maybe he gets angry when someone denies it. Um, but if Jesus is offering, telling the truth, how scary is it when someone tells us the truth to accept or to like share our own truth? Mm-hmm. Um, and how different would that meal have been if they could have like wept together and mourned that this huge thing was happening and betrayal was in motion and all of the, the disciples were going to betray them. And yet we're still family. We're still kindred. We're still having this meal. It's an invitation to me around liberation of I think liberating from like if betrayal is inevitable the shame of having done it like 
kind of breaking through to the act of like recognition that it happened. Um, I can be avoidant as a person. Um, and like if, Je- if Je- Jesus had called me out like that, I originally said I would flee and would not stay at dinner, um, let alone admit my mistake. And yet I think there's a real act of liberation and being able to, to acknowledge and own the harms we've caused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's powerful. Um, I, toward the end of, of last year, was meditating a lot on the idea of forgiveness, um, just kind of across the board. Um, and what is the relationship between forgiveness and apology? Mm. And how powerful it is to um, hear a sincere, I am sorry, and, and I think that was something that kind of catalyzed this exploration for me up, about like a theology, like of apology, right? Not apologetics, it's a different thing, um, but uh, what it means to be sorry. Uh, and yeah, I was listening to a lot of different podcasts where people were exploring, you know, that theme and, and identifying the ways that non-apologies happen more frequently than not, and how common that is, uh, in particular in American culture, to not be sorry, to not um, reckon with yourself and the decisions you made, whether your motivations and intentions were good or not, but to take ownership of something is to admit fault. And when you admit fault, you know, that leads to any number of other outcomes, which can, you know, call into question your uh, authority or integrity as a leader or as a person um, of, you know, upstanding, you know, <laughs> reputation. Uh, and yet you're saying, it seems like that kind of work is inextricably linked to liberation, that you can't, you can't be a free person, you cannot be uh, supporting the freedom of other people if you remain unable to reckon uh, with, with the past. And so to me, that, that's kind of one of the main liberatory messages you know, I, I see here is that, um, a future of flourishing um, seems bound up in being able to really wrestle with whatever the past may hold, um, trauma, right? And, and that can include moral injury, right? Like when a system led you into a place or a position where you thought what you were doing was the right thing, but that right thing actually hurt and harmed other yeah. people. You know, I, I, that, that feels like a very poignant, you know, message for me too, is, is looking at redemption as something that requires um, diving, you know, in and through the past mm. um, and, and being honest 
you know, about how and why those, those things happened and how and why you made the decisions. Right. I think it goes back to your earlier point around the reasons we betray. It's not just pure greed. It's about position. It's about power. And I think, you know, there's like the initial betrayal and then there's the denial of that betrayal that like compounds the betrayal of, um, it's not just that Judas betrayed him, but that when Jesus called him out on it, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And everyone else said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they did because they wanted to maintain their closeness to him. They wanted to maintain their power within the religious system. Like all the reasons they both did it to the system and to, to Jesus are about like something about maintaining a sense of self and what we're invited to in admitting fault and acknowledging harm is both, I think, a recognition of all of the the things at play, not pointing one finger of like, well, I did it because this, I did it because like, that's kind of like, you know, offloading the blame. Um, I did it because I was stressed out and that's why I yelled at you or whatever. Um, but actually like that, how, how grounded and rooted you have to be in yourself to say, you know what? I apologize. Like, I didn't like, I did not mean to treat you that way. That is not the way that I want to respect and value you. And, and having a sincere like owning of the, of the fault. I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast that she just released because you know we need I'll need a little Brene in this moment. And she was talking about their family when they, one of the rules they set for their family um, is that when someone apologizes to you, you say thank you, rather than like it's okay or like putting putting it back, <laughs> yeah. like making it okay for that person just. And I think that, um, I think that Jesus calls us to that. Like, I think Jesus would say, thank you for apologizing. Oh, thank you for owning your mistake. Um, and the path to liberation in that around like, okay, now we can actually be community in a deeper way. Yeah, wow. I was thinking about a moment last year in church um, where again, like the community I'm a part of is quite progressive uh, and I feel fully included, maybe over included, you know, sometimes. Um, but the, the church was in a sermon series um, called Dear, Dear Church People or Dear Church, you know, sort of connected to Dear White People, like that style, you know of a, of accounting for injustices the church like has committed against people um, throughout history and the week that we were talking about um the harm the church has committed against uh queer and trans people um one of my pastors was preaching and made this like direct address to queer and trans people which was an apology uh, for specifically the, the, the theology that supports the idea that something is wrong or pathological about being LGBTQ and all of the different things that have come out of that, um, mm. you know, presupposition. And I just started crying because 
it's one thing to like read Christians kind of blogging about, you know, that phenomena of like their mind being changed and apologizing to queer and trans people because of that. Um, it's another thing to see the way that, uh, you know, Christians like will hold those like apology signs like in pride parades. It's another thing, you know, when somebody to your face is saying, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I, I realized in that moment, I, I didn't even know I needed to hear that. Mm-hmm. And, and all I could do was weep because um, I, I needed somebody to be sorry yeah. for things yeah. that have happened to me. Mm. And, and it's so powerful and it's something that yeah, I see in this text and it's something that I want to go back, you know, through, you know, and, and think about the ways that I might be that person who needs to make the apology, you know, to others in my life. You know, this is not just about like naming everybody who screwed me over, you know, like, I, I think that um, there are so many ways, you know, we can be a part of the healing in this world and making apologies, you know, are real apologies, not non-apologies, um, right. are, are one of those ways. Um, yeah. I, I think that's something, you know, kind of leading into the last question you know, I'm taking from this text is what you've raised. You know, what if Judas would have been like, yeah, I, di- I did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And you're, thank you for sharing that story from your experience, Miles, because I think it shows how deep the interrogation can go. Like, where is the apology needed? And it was about the theology itself. Mm-hmm. That You're right. In so many of these testimonies of minds and hearts being changed, which are very powerful, it can leave that part intact. Like, it was okay that Christianity built a theology and Christians built a theology that dehumanized people. Now my mind's different, but like leaving that part intact. And this is like, let's go all the way down to the root. And I think that's what liberation is, is finding the root of injustice and weeding that out, not just the like snipping the top off. So it's a little prettier, like the yard is pretty, but if there's deep weeds threatening to take over, it's not gonna do much. And I've been kind of in what you were also saying around kind of take what we take with us. Like I was noticing, I was thinking about what is the significance of this is Passover when they're celebrating Passover and holding, you know, in Passover, it's really about being spared and like being, being saved, being delivered. And when Jesus here says, all y'all are going to betray me, um, what that made me realize is like no one is scared there's no blood we can leave on the door to get out of being complicit without to get out of having to apologize for things that we've done without having to receive apologies for things that's been done to us and it made me think like in this table all we can do is show up in our embodied blood and flesh like in that remembrance um and be be a person of liberation 
be a, a carrier of liberation. Um, I think we've talked a lot about in this moment of COVID-19 about let's spread, let's spread the contagious, like beloved community. Um, and I, I think that that's real, that individuals have to, have to um, live from those principles for it to become, it's not just like a thought experiment or some other group of people. And so I think we're noticing here that liberation one pathway is around like acknowledging and noticing when apologies are needed and offering those and then also receiving them um, and and then hearing where we may have caused harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> so I think one thing I'm going to take with me from this reading just to answer that last question is is to be mindful in these coming days and weeks, like when we're really close to each other in some communities, like living with my spouse full, like all the time, um, when we're further away from some others, noticing times when I can be a person who is attentive to like the community dynamics or times when I've spoken harshly or done something I didn't, I wish I, wish I didn't do. Or, or felt like it caused harm and to really own that rather than dismiss it and say, well, we're all stressed. Um, and, and to actually um, offer some liberation to myself and others through that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, that's what, a part of what makes like Holy Week so holy, right? Is that we're all being asked you know, to really kind of look at our lives and look at ourselves and, you know, take some like inventory of like the real stuff that's happened, you know, to us and to those around us. And it's been, one thing that's been really heartening to me um, over the last few weeks is uh, I've been more like narratively telling my own story with um, conversion therapy and like ex-gay kind of logics and to have people reach out to me and and to engage you know people who stopped talking to me several years ago um, have been willing you know to be in this conversation um, and while I don't feel like everybody, you know, uh, would find an experience like that to be life-giving, it has been for me. And I think a part of that's because it is connected to this, like, ob- observance of, uh, of Holy Week, mm-hmm. you know, of everything that led to Jesus's crucifixion um, and the tradition that I myself continue to identify with participates in this in a way that I do think does something um, for for communities and and for ourselves and um, I yeah I I want to really hold that as I continue to participate in these discussions again with friends and family who have reached out from (laughs) many moons ago Um, I, I was apprehensive at first to engage but now I I find myself having the energy to do that. 
And so I, I really do want to be accountable to, to saying thank you from apologies, not like, no worries. <laughs> yeah, like all the trauma I still hold in my body is fine. Like, yeah. yeah. But, that, but being able to receive the apology, that, that is something I want to think more about. Yeah. Well, I noticed in that, like, you're telling the truth. You're showing up to tell the truth about what happened, about your experience, holding it not in a place of blame for others or self, but just like, here is what it is. And the healing that can come when we do that, I think is truly profound. And, you know, we're in this moment of isolation and quiet, For if we're lucky. If we're not, we're working real hard right now. Um, but like, many of us are facing ourselves more intensely for the first time than we've gotten an opportunity to for a long time. And I'm really compelled by what are the ways in which we want to sit with ourselves? And what are the ways in which we want to do some of that investigation of what's coming up for us? Like this is going to activate us in a lot of different ways, trauma responses, anxious responses, and sometimes the compassion and gratitude responses. And um, what would it look like to really see this moment as that opportunity to, to be within? And I think Holy Week invites that individual and systemic exploration around what are we noticing? What are we seeing? Where have we been betrayed and betrayed uh, others? And so taking this opportunity as, as that feels like a, an act of holiness um, because then we notice more of the stuff we're carrying around day in, day out when we're going a hundred miles an hour um, through, through our weeks and days, because I think that's one of the ways we can hold ourselves more accountable and more responsibly in the ways we interact with others. Mm. Yeah. Miles, what a freaking treat to get to talk to you. <laughs> I'm so thankful for the work that you do in the world and the ways in which you exist and resist and call us into liberation and community. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's thank quite, you quite mutual. <laughs> awesome. Thanks everyone who's been watching and um, we'll be back next week with two additional conversations for um, around Good Friday and then Easter. So be on the lookout for those times. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. See you later. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. This podcast is a project of More Light Presbyterians. Tune into our Facebook page at More Light Presby to participate in the live conversation Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Talk next week. Bye.